This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! Test 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Live from Test 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I'm okay. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. All right, we're just testing the equipment. Here we go. Welcome to the broadcast. It's a little rusty. I've been away. Uh, I mean, I've been here, but not. Through the magic of radio. It's amazing. Uh, Welcome to the broadcast for uh, Sunday, December the 4th, 2011. And uh, I've been away. Uh, I've been in Greece for about three and a half weeks, although you did hear my uh, my voice uh, uh, bouncing around the... uh, Ionosphere, because, well, a little trade secret, I pre-tape shows occasionally, and uh, uh, so that's what you heard, some pre-taped programs. Brand new, I mean, I pre-taped them especially for you. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the family, we, we, uh, we went to Greece, and uh, were there for about three and a half weeks, spent some time in Athens, then down in, in Kalamata. I'll tell you a little bit about that later, uh, but... I um, I landed back in Canada, or we did, on Thursday night, and uh, I'm jet-lagged, severely jet-lagged, although I'm not sure what that really means. Uh, as, a, as a father of five-year-old twins, I really don't see any difference. I'm always jet-lagged. I, I always feel this way. <laughs> so, anyway, a little later in the program, uh, we'll be joined by a British author, investigative journalist, Philip Coppins, and he is the editor of Eric Von Daniken's new book, remember Chariots of the Gods, right? That's like ground zero for a lot of people in the UFO community, that book. Uh, but Phil Coppins is, uh, has edited Von Daniken's new book, uh, which is called Odyssey of the Gods. And it's interesting because just returning from Greece, this book theorizes, Van Daniken is theorizing that the, the gods of the Greek pantheon, Zeus and Poseidon and and Hermes and, and uh, Apollo, etc., etc., that they were they actually were they were real, but they weren't human. They were ETs. So if you want to connect the dots and, and stick with us uh, till uh, twelve a.m., uh, that promises to be an interesting discussion. Uh, first hour, because it's been a while since I've uh, been here with you, I thought we'd throw the phone lines wide open and uh, do some open lines for the hour. And uh, before I get started, though, I just I want to uh, welcome aboard. A, uh, while I was away, I lost somebody and I gained somebody. 
and I and it was it all happened by email. When I left here, I had a producer, a, a very capable uh, young man by the name of Griffin March, and uh, all of a sudden I'm in uh, Athens. I get an email saying, uh, uh, "Hello, I must be going," and <laughs> Griffin was gone. And then uh, I'm introduced to uh, uh, David uh, uh, Gaskin who is uh, sitting behind the glass, uh, smiling back at me, and he is the new technical producer on The Conspiracy Show. So, David, a big hello and a welcome, and uh, don't you mess up. (laughs) You'll be fine, right? The show's on autopilot, just like me tonight. Uh, And because I am a uh, a uh, a little giddy, can you tell? Uh, and a little jet-lagged, uh, I brought um, uh, Nelson Thal, media scientist Nelson Thal, uh, along with me for the first hour just to prop me up in case I keel over. <laughs> Nelson, uh, good to see you again. Welcome. Yeah, welcome, and it's great you had a safe flight and returned. Yeah, it was, uh, I tell you, um, uh, never been to Greece before, married to a Greek, of course, uh, for 11-plus uh, years, and uh, we took the, uh, the twins over there, had a great time. Uh, saw a lot of relatives of uh, the mighty Aphrodites, and um, I feel like I really did sort of the Greek experience. I mean, we were in Athens, we went down to the south in Kalamata, we went up into the mountains, into the what they call the horios, the villages. Uh, for those uh, um, uh, Greeks out there, you'll know what I'm referring to. Uh, the mighty Aphrodite's uh, father's uh, horio. And it's interesting because of the one little guy, uh, my one little twin, has a very strong resemblance to her side of the family. Uh. So here we are, we're walking around these small villages, like mm-hmm. there's only two or three families left there. Uh-huh. We're walking along these winding cobblestone streets, and all of a sudden we turn around this corner, and, and uh, the little guys are running loose in the streets. Of course, there's no very few cars. <laughs> and this old woman stops in her tracks, and she looks down at uh, the one, the one with curly hair. Yeah. She points to him, and she goes, Sekelaropoulos. <laughs> She recognized wow. that this, never having even met him, that he was from that side of the family. Right. And she lived like two doors down. So it's amazing. amazing. Uh, we're there in November, which is all of, uh, all of harvest time. So people are busy in the fields. Like Greece in the summer, from what I understand, is very oppressive in the summer. The, the heat is incredibly oppressive, is what I meant to say. Um, the IMF is also very oppressive there right now. But we're talk- <laughs> The heat in the summer is so oppressive that people just, I mean, the tourists come. But the locals, they kind of lie low. In November, people are out working in the fields. It's harvest time. The, the nightlife is incredible. The people are coming. It's, they can breathe again. They're enjoying their, their city. They have their country back. Yeah. All the touristas are gone. So no, Greece in November, if you've never been, it's wonderful. Uh, but I fell in love with the country, particularly the mountains. And uh, I, I said to the mighty Aphrodite, after my first trip up the mountains, I, I drove the, the rental up there, these hairpin turns all the way, winding up, 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 up. You, you don't think you can go any further, and then there's another road, and, and all of a sudden you're uh, in this beautiful, this beautiful village. Uh, I said, my God, I had this epiphany. I said, I want to live here, and I want to die here. It was just absolutely stunning. Uh, anyway, wonderful time. And we visited uh, the mighty Aphrodite's um, mother. Mm-hmm. Her, her, her people have mm-hmm. this olive field oh, wow. way up in another mountain. And um, during the Second World War, they would, go, they would go up there and they would hide in the caves wow. on their property. What the Greeks call, the caves are called spilia. Oh. They would hide from the Nazis in these caves. Oh, so wow. I, I went up there with my mother-in-law yeah. and my wife and the kids and, and, uh, and, and we, she hadn't been up there in years. And mm-hmm. she broke down. She was crying. And uh, mm-hmm. she was showing us that inside this cave, she was showing the kids, here's where I would sleep. Huh. 
uh, and uh, and then there was a cave around the corner. That's where they kept the cattle, and uh, just anyway. Oof. So we're inside the cave. Yeah. And uh, I'm posing for a picture inside the cave with uh, the two little guys, and uh, the mighty Aphrodite snaps a picture. And uh, we're walking down the mountain. She's she's. It's one of those you know Sony Sure shots. You can digital cameras. So you yeah. can review the photos you've taken. She goes, "Wait a minute. Look at this. Come here. Look at this." So I went over to her, and the photo of me inside the Spilia, the cave, oh. with the two little guys. Yeah. There is a. a, a I don't know. I know that you're not a big paranormal guy, Nelson, but there was an orb. Really? An orb hovering over our head. And oh. it, it wasn't there in any of the other pictures. Are you familiar with the, the orb phenomena? Sure. Yeah, where people think it could be this, a spirit. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I mean, if the ca- the walls in that cave could talk, I you mean, said. imagine families hiding there out there from the Nazis and generations lived in that cave during all of harvest time. Sure. So there's this orb floating over our heads. Good angels. And, I think so. Something. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to post that on the website, uh, theconspiracyshow.com, oh, that's great. at some point. Anyway, listen, why don't we uh, mosey on into a break, come back, and uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to some calls, if I can remember the numbers. It's been an... <laughs> You'll roll the numbers over there, David. I'll give you a job. You roll the numbers, and uh, if you're at home, you might want to just, uh, you know, uh, scribble those down and put them on your fridge. They might come in handy sometime. Back uh, with more. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back to the David Gaskin Show. No, that's, uh, that's the name of our new technical producer here, so when, uh, when, you, uh, when you say hello to him on the phones... Uh, be kind. And um, I also want to uh, uh, say hello and uh, a big thank you to Victor Vigiani, who sat in for me uh, and did a live show on uh, the 27th of uh, November. And uh, by all accounts, did a terrific job. And I knew he would. Uh, so, Victor, if you're listening, and you better be, thank you, thank you, thank you for a, a terrific uh, show. Um, let's... Uh, Let's work in a phone call here, and I should also point out Nelson Thal, media scientist, JFK assassination researcher, uh, and the uh, the researcher for the conspiracy television show. You probably have seen his name on the uh, the end credits. So uh, he's part of the conspiracy show family. Fred is in Whitby this evening. Fred, welcome to the conspiracy show AM seven forty. Hello, Fred. How are you doing? I'm well. I was wondering if you could do a show on Jonathan Pollard and the F-35, that the plans that he stole, and it makes the plane inefficient, and the, its signature is uh, can be uh, traced. This so is the this is the plane the plane that the the, the Canadian uh, Air uh, Defense just bought, right? The A-35. Yeah, uh, that, that uh, people, many people are saying is well way overpriced, and the maintenance fees are through the roof. And and uh, uh, this is the the uh, you're saying that Jonathan Pollard, who's a convicted is, Israeli spy, this is the these are the secrets that he was selling. Yeah, and it makes the the, the plane infi- inefficient. Interesting. Well, uh, I did get an email, Fred. I don't know if that was from you or not, uh, asking me to do a show. So if it wasn't you, obviously there are lots of people out there wanting to hear that show. So I'll look into that. Well, I'm a Gemini. <laughs> you're a Gemini. So there may be two of me. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. That's right. 
Yes, everyone's got a doppelganger. All right, Fred and Whitby, uh, I'll look into that. Um, sounds like a, a fascinating area. All right, we haven't heard about Jonathan Pollard for quite some time. He was uh, no. in the news for quite a while. They're, they're trying to do a trade for him. Is that right? Right now, behind the scenes, it's been reported now and then that uh, had you Israelis heard his, are trying to get him back. Had you heard his name in connection with the A35 before? Uh, no, I've always heard it. in. Well, first of all, it, he, he gave up a lot of secrets. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a WikiLeaks of secrets. Right. So uh, the main one was the submarine propeller was the one that we first heard about. Okay. That the uh, the silencing propeller plans were 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 he gave away but i'm sure because he's in jail for so long and that's such a big he's such a major spy there were, there were a number of secrets that he gave away not just one but he's been in jail for such a long time that the 835 i can't imagine that that uh, you know that he would be connected with that but who knows who knows yeah. uh mark is in the great state of maryland tonight hello mark welcome to the conspiracy show thank you for welcoming me aboard and i've actually been with you since your premiere night except for occasionally heavy local thunder showers, you come in great. Ah, that's terrific. And uh, that was August 16th, 2009 we kicked it off. Yes, it's, it, it hardly seems like it's been that long, but it has. Well, then hello, dear friend. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I had an experience to share with you, an unusual phenomenon, which I have not heard discussed anywhere. Uh, briefly, on May 28th of this year, uh, middle of the night, I heard some noise outside. I went out with a flashlight. And when I shined it uh, at a next-door neighbor's house, it had a 20-foot-tall uh, um, red maple tree. Something jumped out of it and ran off down the street. And to, it happened so fast, I didn't even have time to be startled, but it looked for, for everything like a stick man. A stick man? I mean, I thought, the first thing I thought was stick man, like grade school. Right, right. And then I said, how could anything with legs and arms that thin even stay upright? But the thing had to be 10 feet tall because it was half the height of the tree and it was actually camouflaged by the branches till I shone the flashlight on it. And I probably startled it. But then, <laughs> then after that, I decided to lock the place up and come back in. My word. You sure it wasn't Manit, Bo- Manit Bowl? He used to play down the road with the Washington uh, Wizards. Oh, no, way too thin. <laughs> this was way too thin. Wow. I mean, a a I new mean, type of drone. Are, we're talking arms and legs. Half the diameter of a soda can. Did it? Did it make any aggressive gestures towards it, you, Mark? No, it, it, it acted like it was really scared. Right. And did it, it have took any? Off dis- like a shot, but it ran right out into the street light. Did it have any distinguishing features? Like, did it have eyes, like, nose? Again, other than I would say the head was oval shaped. Uh, it looked like something you'd see in art class. Interesting. And uh, I've talked to people, and they said, "Well, maybe it was one of those." Um, uh, uh, praying mantis type aliens i said it only had two arms and two legs now nelson you said something uh, you were you were being somewhat facetious but you well, said probably, a new type of drone but yeah, maybe a new there's drone. Some, a new drone i've heard of new drones of stickmen drones what it was, but I've never stick stickmen like drones they've got all sorts of high tech drones they've got bumblebees they've admitted to and flies that are drones thanks for your work thanks a lot appreciate it mark in maryland thank you 416 360 0740 how am i doing so far david Right? <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, a little bit of ring rust, but I got plenty of ring savvy. 416-360-0740 and toll-free from just about anywhere, places like Maryland, for example, one 740 
888-900-4740. Good to be back. Uh, Richard Serrett with you, along with a media scientist, uh, assassination researcher, a broadcaster, uh, Nelson Thal. Just kicking things around in the first hour, sort of, I guess, testing the equipment for my uh, first show back in uh, nearly a month. And uh, again, in the second hour of the show, uh, Phil Collins. Not Phil Collins, Phil Coppins. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the first uh, broadcaster who's referred to him as uh, the, the drummer for Genesis. Uh, but Phil Coppins uh, will be with us to talk about uh, um, uh, Odyssey of the Gods. Were the gods of the Greek pantheon, in fact, E.T.'s? Rich, how was the, uh, you're just back from Greece, how was the graffiti in Greece? Did you have time to study it? Well, that's, you know, I wasn't expecting that, actually. And, and when you mentioned that to me just off the air a minute ago, I thought, well, wh- how did he know about the graffiti? Like, is, is that well known, that, that, that Athens is just, it's just a sea of graffiti? Because I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting to see these pristine Corinthian columns everywhere. And then, uh, and then I'm, you, you know, you, you're in the cab on the way back from the airport or uh, going to the hotel in the airport. And, and it's just endless graffiti, graffiti, graffiti everywhere, even on government buildings. And then all of a sudden there'll be like, you know, the, the temple to Zeus, free, luckily, of graffiti. Right. Uh, and then more graf- everywhere you go, it's graffiti. And well, some of it is beautiful. The whole science of oratory was born in Greece with Cicero and others. And right. so they're very vocal people and the uh, the graffiti, there's more graffiti there than anywhere else. And of course, graffiti is a great art form because it's uh, it's not tainted by the bankers, is it? You know, that's interesting. Uh, no, I, I wish I could. I mean, my Greek improved probably about 50 percent, which means it, I can now order in a restaurant. But uh, it's it's somewhat limited, and that, and I didn't even think to ask the mighty Aphrodite to, as you're whizzing, you know, whipping past the graffiti to, to uh, to translate. I'm guessing though it's something a little more lofty than you know for a good time call Helen or or uh, usually it you know, cuts right to the bone with truth about what's really happening. Well, this is a nation of philosophers, you know, exactly. uh, so I'm sure their graffiti is like a cut above. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be a very interesting, uh, a very interesting study. Uh, John is in Thornhill this evening. Welcome aboard, John. Hello. Yeah, I was wondering, um, I, there's a few months ago where you were talking, somebody came on, same idea as what I'm doing, and they talked about pyramids that were below in Lake Michigan. Pyramids in Lake, under Lake Michigan? Yeah. Um, I, that one doesn't sound familiar. Um, how, I do recall speaking with, um, a gentleman about uh, Egyptians uh, operating a, a, a copper mine on the north shores of Lake Superior. The, the, Maybe that was it. Yes, because uh, when you look at the Bronze Age, there's not enough. I mean, copper is essential, obviously, in the manufacturing of, 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 of bronze. There's not enough copper in Europe. So where did all this copper come from to, you know, to, to, uh, to fuel, if you will, uh, the Bronze Age in, in Europe? Well, copper mines... There was a huge copper mine operation uh, in, in Lake Superior, uh, you know, before the, the, the birth of Christ. And, and, and uh, how are they getting that stuff back in these huge ships? And who was doing the mining? Apparently some Egyptians and ancient Greeks and Minoans and so forth. It's fascinating. But uh, anyway, John, that's probably not where you were going. And I'm sorry, I, no, I, no, I prattled no, on there. That was it. That was what I was thinking. That's of. what you were looking for? Yep. Okay. Like, I thought it was pyramids. I knew that the Egyptians were involved in it. And I just thought... 
pyramids. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the the name of the guest escapes me, uh, but if you go to richardserrett.com or theconspiracyshow.com and, and get onto my website and do a, a search, there's a, a search engine on the homepage, uh, uh, I would say maybe try uh, um, the search word archaeology, alternative archaeology. His name might come up, and if and if I can think of it before the the, uh, the show uh, ends, I'll I'll shout it out to you. Okay. So that means you have to listen right to the end, John. Oh yeah, hold me in suspense. <laughs> All right. Thanks for the call. <laughs> but I love your show. I've been listening since you were on the other station. The other station that shall remain nameless. That yeah. fired me on inauguration day, <laughs> oh, yeah. 2009. Well, just, you hit an iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> I turned it on one night and you weren't there. That's radio. That's and radio. Like, what happened? Where you? Glass and ceilings. Nothing. Free speech is glass ceilings. That's the thing about radio. You never get to say goodbye. No. But we'll say so long. Just for a moment, we'll be back with more. Nelson Thal, Richard Serrett. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And, uh, you know, we're just a few weeks from closing out another year, and uh, 2012 will be uh, coming on strong with some uh, uh, brand new programs for you as well. We'll... uh, We'll touch on a lot of uh, things. Uh, Nelson Athol is with us in studio, and Nelson, you greeted me at the door downstairs. Uh, you kind of teased me, but this is something that we have to talk about in the new year, I think, and that is uh, we're going to go back into the time machine, but it's, it's relevant, and that's uh, O.J. Simpson um, and a connection with the Ford Motor Company. And uh, this, you blew my mind when you were telling me about this, and this comes to you in, in very good... Um, you know, sources. from very, very, from very yeah. good sources. But you also teased me with something else. Can I talk? Can I divulge? Yeah. We, we talk about. We'll talk about it next year. But yes. The, the, Same the fact s- that there's a lot of evidence. Same source. Yes. Michael Jackson is alive. Yeah. I yeah. mean, because you know, I talk a lot about you know what if what if Jim Morrison were still alive and what if Elvis did fake his death and yeah. a lot of these things. Quite frankly, you. You, it's like an onion. You know, you peel back the layers, you look at the evidence, and ultimately you're, nothing, you're left with nothing but uh, uh, onion skins. There's no, there's no kernel or there's yeah. no core to it. You can't go any further with it. But, and, and Michael Jackson, same thing. I mean, the, the YouTube videos. Oh, we saw Michael Jackson. So you think it's, this has some legs to it, this story? Uh, once again, it's uh, follow the money. And the money leads uh, out of his money was he took his money out of the United States. There's a lot of things going on, okay. and we'll get into it. But one thing's for sure: uh, if the government is trying to get you, and you got off the first time, you know that there's no end to how they'll try to continue to attack you in the courts. And um, uh, this may be a way of. Uh, protecting and saving yourself remember uh there's been a remember we'll go into michael jackson and and jordan michael jordan right and, and the uh and uh, cosby and the connections and the the pattern that's developing with some of these people who were involved with these uh these ford motor company derivative options wow this and, and i happen to know of the source you speak we can't name him no. uh, but uh or her or her thank you um, I think people would be fascinated if they knew the name of this person, realizing that this person is actually connected to CIA, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, actually, CIA and FBI. Right, right. So the, the thing is that with the internet now, there's a lot of people as the pyramid crumbles who are in the intelligence communities who are retired out in the cold and they're working with existing agents who are out in the cold and um, they, uh, they're interested in talking about what they know. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's I look why it's we'll interesting it. because these are all the state secrets the ruling elite hope you don't learn. Well, we definitely have to do a show on uh, on uh, uh, O.J. Simpson and his connection to the Ford Motor Company and yeah. why and how that may have been behind the whole his the framing oh. of O.J. Simpson. Yeah, uh, and the framing also, of O.J. Simpson. Yes. Exactly. Uh, and uh, the Michael Jackson story, of course, is yeah. fascinating. And and um, we'll get into that in the new year. Terrific. Well. Uh, I, if there are any um, uh, of our Greek friends listening tonight, and if you want to jump on board on, on this discussion, we'd love to talk to you. But, you know, uh, obviously, uh, uh, Greece has become sort of the whipping boy now of Europe because it was sort of not really first out of the gate, but it's it's uh, what's happening in Greece with the what they're calling the sovereign currency uh, debt crisis. Well, there's nothing sovereign about the currency <laughs> in Greece. They have no control. Uh, over their currency there. Uh, but Greece is, is, let's face it, it's a financial basket case. Uh, but, um, the, I mean, it will survive. Uh, and and the, the interesting thing is when I went over there, people were saying, you're going over there now? Uh, and this was just about the time, uh, you know, with the protests and, and so forth. But it was, it was uh, all confined to one small area uh, I'm going to mispronounce this. I'm going to get um, I'm going to get pinched when I go home. But I, Sigmata Square is where the uh, I believe it's Sigmata Square. That's where the uh, the Parliament buildings are, and uh, that's where the pri the, the protests were. Well, we were there just like uh, uh, less than a week ago, and it's calm as calm can be. We we, watch, we you know we watched the changing of the guard. It was beautiful. Uh, so nothing going on. It, all is calm, and. Uh, um, I mean, Greece has suffered through worse, right? They, uh, the, 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 the Italian, um, attempted Italian occupation, although they told them where to go, and then the, the German occupation, and then the, the civil war, uh, and then the, uh, the military junta, um, you know, which ended up, in the, in, I think, in the mid-70s. Yeah. Although I tell you, you talk to some people in some of the older generation, they kind of pine for the junta. Yeah. Because during the junta, the streets were clean, <laughs> no graffiti, yeah. no graffiti, everybody worked. Uh, uh, of course, you know, you, you, uh, you talked about the glass ceiling. If you said the wrong thing, you could end up, obviously, in, the, uh, in a very deep, dark, terrible place. Uh, but my understanding of what's going on in Greece, you've got two things. One, Greece has made a lot of mistakes, and they have this huge, they have this bloated bureaucracy. Uh, Papandreou and his cronies, who was, I believe, educated at York University, yeah. or was a professor at York University at yeah. one time, uh, we're talking about Papandreou Sr. Yeah. He came into power, socialist, and he just created this vast, vast bureaucracy. So, I mean, if you want to go to the washroom, you have to get a signature. You've got to go to the notary public and get a signature, and then you've got to go somewhere else and get it uh, uh, witnessed. And then you've got to go to what they call the ICA. Uh, I learned all about the ICA while I was <laughs> over there. I tell you, uh, I spent a lot of time in the ICA. I don't know if people are familiar with the ICA. It's this elaborate insurance scheme they have over there. Uh, and to get anything done, you've got to have ICA or insurance. And um, 
I, I spent more time in ECA offices and, and uh, uh, the, you know, notary public offices uh, than I did at the, uh, the Acropolis. <laughs> but uh, that's the real Greece right now is the ECA. ECA. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, it's just ridiculous. It's The big long picture of it, of course, is from a Daniel's standpoint. Uh, Greece was an empire prior to the rise of Rome. And when Rome ri- took over, Greece disappeared and fell. Right. And then the Roman Empire fell and uh, Greeks became a nation. Right. And as the Roman Empire rises once again, the Greek nation is on its way out, just like the, at the last time the Roman Empire rose. And, and the Roman Empire's rising is knocking like dominoes all the nations mm-hmm. of Europe. I mean, if you're the head of Greece, you're better off than the head of Poland. With The head of Poland, what they did is they put them all on a plane and sabotaged the plane. Yes, that's true. Uh, but the, the thing with, with Greece is despite its, I mean, yes, it's got huge a huge bureaucracy and it's got huge debt problems, but a lot of what's going on now is something else. And uh, from what I'm understanding and talking to the people, even the cab drivers are hip to this, you yeah. know? The, Goldman Sachs just yeah. rules. They don't speak any other English, but they'll say, Goldman Sachs, and yeah. they'll wave their finger at you. <laughs> right, right. Because they all admit there was no way that, that Greece should have been in the, in the uh, European Union. They didn't belong. How can you put a little tiny country like Greece, which has nothing but the sun and the sea, as one cab driver said to me, we have nothing here but the sun and the sea. How can you put that under the same currency umbrella as Germany? Yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. So they, weren't, they, weren't, they had no business being in the euro, but they got dragged in there, and, they, and it was done because, I'm told, Goldman Sachs did some very creative bookkeeping, and they hid a lot of Greek debt. I mean, in order to qualify for the EU, there were certain measures, right. yardsticks, right? Your, your debt-to-GDP ratio had to be such, uh, and so forth. They cooked the books. They cooked the books. And so what happens is Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, they basically bet on the losing side to lose, and they win, right? Right, right. As, uh, there was a great article about Goldman Sachs in, the Rolling, Stone, in Rolling Stone magazine uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, they, they were talking about the debt crisis in the United States at some point. They said, if, if America is circling the drain, somehow Goldman Sachs always manages to be the drain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, so you were, you know, mentioning off air how basically what's going on in Greece right now is it's just larceny. The, it, the country's being looted yeah. because of this huge debt problem. And now... And the monarchies, know, of course, are... The big players in it, the crown heads of Europe, as we've been talking about for a long, long, long time. Ooh, as, as, the crown. Yeah, as represented by the bankers and the IMF, who are basically calling in their marker. Right, the uh, Club of the Isles, the Order of the Garter, and yeah. then they control the bankers. But, but uh, uh, I mean, these German uh, banks that, yeah. that loaned all of this money to Greece illegally because— yeah. You, you're, they weren't supposed to under the rules of the EU, but again, Goldman Sachs yeah. cooked the books, so they got all this money right. under the table from the German banks, which fed nicely into Pompadreou's, you know, bloated bureaucracy, uh, and then they call in the marker, and so the IMF comes in and they say, well, you're going to have to sell this and that and your your state, uh, I don't know, uh, electrical company, and your and uh, someone, some filmmaker was uh, was talking about how you know they'll probably. Um, um, put a for sale sign on the Parthenon. Yeah, I and they'll say, well, it needs a little spackle, but uh, you know, we'll put a Starbucks right here in the corner, and we'll uh, we'll get uh, three billion for it. Yeah, I think we should remember, Rich, that um, that uh, 
bankers are, are certainly behind a lot of this. They don't make money though. They can they don't create money. They can print money and they can invest money, but it takes the monarchy is able to make money. That's why you just pull out the dollar twenty dollar bill and you'll see the Queen of England on our dollar. She's the one who can it's right there in front of us. She is the one who creates money. Bankers can't, out of invisible nowhere, create money. It takes the monarchy and the crown. To well, do yeah, that. they need they need their picture on the uh, the currency. I guess they're they can create money. They create currency, and when a thing is current, it creates currency. So the currency is made by the monarchies and the bank using the bankers. Right, right. So I mean, there's a lot of discussion in Greece right now. You know, uh, uh, is this the end of the euro? Should we, would we be better off going back to the drachma? And where's the king of Greece? He's in, in London. He lives in London. Right. Yes. And he's the guy to keep an eye on because he'd be pulling the strings there and controlling Greece. Interesting. Interesting. Use and pulling the plug on the nation state. Well, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> I think Greece will survive. I don't know under, into, under which form. Uh, but the question, I guess, is will the euro uh, survive? Uh, it's been reported that banks are being, war- being warned to prepare for the end of the euro. Italy, of course, is facing the same situation as, as Greece. Again, very similar culture, huge bureaucracy. Uh, and um, uh, the, the, the difference, though, is, you know, Italy has some manufacturing base. They, can, they could possibly pull themselves out of this. Greece has nothing, again, but the sea and the sun. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no way they could possibly uh, pay back that debt. Uh, even uh, one austerity measure after another, eventually you're just they're going to they're going to kill the patient. And what currency does the king of the north want to eventually use in the Roman em- the new Holy Roman Empire? Well, we don't know, but that's the question. What, right, right. The king of the north will have a currency for the new Roman Empire. We got to watch to see what it is. And uh, uh, I mean, uh, Germany, I guess, would be the the head of the new Roman Empire. Certainly, the head of Germany. Jeez, uh, where have yeah. I heard that before? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Toll free from out of town. 866-740-4740. 866-740-4740. If you want to talk about what's going on in, in Europe, uh, in Greece, uh, it, what's going to happen in Italy, what's about to happen in Spain, in Portugal, in Ireland, as this... Uh, this uh, sovereign currency debt crisis, as they call it, uh, uh, spreads across uh, Europe. And, you know, what are the implications for here in North America? If you want to talk about just about anything that we discuss on this program, we'll make the phone lines available to you. Or a reminder that uh, Philip Coppins will be with us in about uh, 20 minutes' time uh, to discuss Odyssey of the Gods. Uh, interesting theory. He's edited this new book by Eric von Daniken. And uh, the theory is that the Greek gods were, in fact, ETs. Uh, uh, what can I say about um, you know the uh, the uh, the Acropolis, the, the the Parthenon? Spectacular. We went up there on a very cold, blustery uh, November day, um, uh, but still, it's 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 a, it's a it's a wonder to behold. I'll tell you something though. Maybe what is Greece's best kept secret? Uh-huh. And 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 these are um, the mighty Aphrodite was saying these should be considered wonders of the world. One of the seven wonders. They're called the caves of the the Ru or the Ro. You go down to the, the southernmost tip of the European uh, continent uh-huh. uh, on a, one of the, uh, you know, the southern, the southern part of Greece is like these five fingers. If you go down to the tip of, of one of these five fingers, uh, you find these caves. And you, um, you go down some steps, you get into a boat, and you actually 
are and there's a uh, you know a, a guide in the back pulling his way through these caves, and it's like this not, this cathedral, the wow. stalagmites, and the uh, the formations, these and these huge cavernous openings in these caves, and you go around these you know these rock formations, and you're into this other spectacular room, and they're lit up, uh, and uh, this goes on for like over a kilometer, oh. and then you get out of the cave and you walk. In, in underground in the cave for another half kilometer before you emerge on the other side. Uh, that, for me, was an absolute highlight. I mean, that rivals, for me, the Acropolis, except wow. that this is underground. The caves of the Ro, if you ever get there. Um, spectacular. All right. So, Nelson, what else is going on? Uh, that we, I want to ask you about... Um, uh, uh, the, maybe we can talk Sports. about this on the other side. Yeah, you, you were hinting that we can talk We've about... We've got to talk about... the. We've we got our files are bulging with sports conspiracies. Now, when you talk about a sporting conspiracy, are you talking oh, about fixed matches or yeah, involving the uh, involving gambling and uh, s- top figures in the in the sports world? Right, right. I mean, we know from the history uh, the list and fight round. The second list, the first list and fight, he didn't come out in the seventh round. The second oh, you're list talking about the fight, Ali list yeah, and fight, the, right. sha- the, the, the yeah, the, yeah the, the the shadow punch or whatever they call that, phantom the, punch, the phantom punch, right, and. We know even in our era, just a few years ago, there's been a lot of talk in books about how they fixed the Super Bowl. And so we're going to be talking to some of those people who have talked about that, written about it, researched it, and present it. Right, right. Okay. William is in Central Park, New York. William, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, are you there, William? Yes, can you hear me? I can. Now, are you on a cell phone walking in Central Park? No, no, no. I'm in central New York uh, ah. at the end of the Catskill Mountains. Ah, beautiful country. Yep. All right, my friend. Um, what's on your mind? Uh, I just told a gentleman that um, all during the evening on uh, your station, when you're playing music, the reception is perfect. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> One minute before you come on with the conspiracy program, it, it, it's, uh, the, the reception goes all to pot. It does? Yes. That's not a surprise. <laughs> well, uh, let me see now. Uh, last time, I, Now, you're down in the Hudson Valley, right? Um, no, no. No? That's uh, not considered the Hudson Valley? Be, between uh, Binghamton and Albany. Ah, okay. Well, just down the road in the Hudson Valley. Town is Baseball Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, yes, yes, of well, course. Well, around there. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, if you were in the Hudson Valley, I, I would say, well, that would be the Rockefellers uh, who, who might, you know... <laughs> I should say so. <laughs> kiboshing yeah. the program. I'm sure well, the NSA <clears throat> and all the alphabet soup agencies are doing everything <laughs> they can to block the system. That's right. Jam the conspiracy show. That's well, well, for sure. It's interesting. Uh, it's good to know, you know, where we're being picked up and, and, and what the signal's like. I just got a call from a gentleman in uh, Maryland who says it comes in, you know, clear as, uh, clear as um, uh, anything. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know whether it might have anything just to do with the uh, the uh, the mountains there, the Catskill Mountains. Possibly. Well, no. Well, it might. It might have. I'm not in too, it, where the mountains are too big. You know, too high. Right. Right. Yep. Well, try. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Get a coat hanger. Bend a coat hanger. <laughs> uh, climb up on the roof with your uh, receiver. Do whatever you have to. Uh, just keep listening, William. And thanks for checking in. Okay. Thank you. All right. There's yep. uh, William in the Catskills. Um, beautiful country, beautiful country. Catskills, New York. 416-360-0740 and 866-740-4740. I'll come back. Richard Sarrett and company. David Gaskin. 
responsible for the bells and whistles, and uh, Nelson Thal for uh, Comic Relief, our uh, media scientist assassination researcher, as uh, we test out the equipment here. My first show back in nearly a month. Good to be back. Good to have these four friendly walls around me once again. Good to have you all listening, my radio family out there. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Odyssey of the Gods with Philip Coppins coming up in just about 15 minutes' time. You'll want to stay tuned for that. This is fascinating and, and interesting. i just just getting back from Greece, and here's this uh, new book out uh, by Eric von Daniken, uh, edited by my next guest, talking about the Greek pantheon of gods, uh, and, w- and speculating that they may have been uh, extraterrestrials. Uh, now, Nelson Thal, media scientist, in studio with me as well, as I say, propping me up as I, uh, I battle through this uh, jet lag, <laughs> uh, having just landed uh, on, on Thursday. Now, you were talking about you know, the death of the, uh, the nation-state, which is obviously a, you know, a large part of what we talk about on this program, and often this happens right under our noses by, you know, by stealth. Take, for example... Uh, what's going on right now, recent meetings between, uh, you know, this, I say recent meetings, ongoing meetings uh, with uh, our Prime Minister Stephen Harper and President Barack Obama. Uh, This, um, uh, what they're calling this perimeter security agreement, the North American Perimeter Security Agreement. Now, here they are basically negotiating a treaty that will allow U.S. law enforcement to operate in our border and vice versa. Right. And this is this is a this is a this is a treaty. It's 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 being it's being discussed. It's being signed. It's not even being debated. I mean, that's never mind against the Constitution. I mean, that's just dare I say treasonous. But I mean, when, once you have law enforcement from another country being able to come in here and arrest and detain citizens, you no longer have a country, Nelson. Well, uh, the head of state. For under our constitution, the Queen of Canada has been an absentee landlord and ruling the country from another country for a long time, and we put up with it. So I'm sure they'll they'll just put up with this again. I don't think they'll be able to stop it. Uh, this is what's happening. I mean, the the uh, the, the monarchical rule is taking over and uh, the people and the government, the elected officials, just are watchers, don't you think, Richard? Well, bystanders. Yes, well, like, like even the media is sitting back and sa- scratching their head. Uh, even the establishment media at this, this, uh, this, as I say, the North American Perimeter Security Agreement, uh, CTV yeah. journalists are, uh, are concerned. They're saying that um, this draft agreement for what they're calling an integrated perimeter security between the U.S. and Canada... Canadian officials are refusing to release the draft agreement. Yeah. One CTV panel uh, member points out, it seems the Canadian government has put the cart before the horse, intent on first signing the deal, then discussing it. Another panelist quips he has a copy of the agreement that doesn't exist, refusing, it to, sh- refusing to show it to viewers because officials were keeping it under wraps. And this, this uh, agreement is being termed a mini-NAFTA that could undermine sovereignty through its integration scheme. And... Um, and he- Sorry, Richard. Oh, I'm, I'm just saying, the, uh, if if yeah. this comes to fruition, crossing the border would require security clearance for a smart card. 
that would include the mandatory submission of biometric identifiers and a fee. But also, again, it would allow, um, you know, U.S. Um, all this is happening law enforcement. And all this is happening at the same time that, frighteningly, um, the United States Senate has passed a bill that basically cancels habeas corpus mm-hmm. as well as uh, uh, posse comma status. Yes, yes. You so can be detained indefinitely. They can, they yes. can use, not only that, they, now they're, giving, they're passing a bill that's going to give the American army yes. and military the right – and the authority to it go into its own country and and go to war with its own citizens. Yes, so, arrest and detain without due process. Yeah, so we Isn't do, that called martial law? So we have the U.S. government versus we the people. Yes. And, of course, that was very evident at 9-11. Yes. I mean, that's called martial law, isn't it? When you have a military going yeah. to war against its own people, arresting and detaining without warrant. I mean, yeah. up here we call it the War Measures Act. Right. But that's, that's, that's martial law. When yeah. you have a president that can... And he, through he, executive order, assassinate his own citizens exactly. and not discuss it with anybody. Yeah. To me, 1984 is here. That's, that's martial here. law. We've been saying it's, it for decades. 1984 exists. Yes, by stealth. They see everything. Incrementally. Everybody, everybody's email is listened, is read by computers and passed on, searched. Everybody's phone calls. Everything is listened to and everybody's watched. Right. Uh, Tony is in Brampton uh, this evening. Tony, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm fine, Richard. How are you? Well, thank you. Good. I have a a question. Uh, Why did the Nazis invade Greece during World War II? Was it strategic? Or was there something uh, about their natural resources? Uh, what they didn't get then, it looks like they're trying to get now. <laughs> That's interesting. Yes, they have succeeded. Uh, well, I think mainly it was strategic. Also, they had to rescue Mussolini, uh, who basically disgraced himself. They went in there, of course, uh, hoping, thinking Mussolini and, and the Italians uh, were part of the Axis powers, thinking they were going to roll over Greece. And uh, this is a very famous uh, day that's celebrated to this day in Greece. It's, um, I believe, the, the date, again, I'm going to get kicked in the rear end if I don't get it right, but I think it's November 28th, and that's called Ohi Day. It's celebrated across Greece and here in Canada. They have a parade down the Danforth. Ohi meaning no. Uh, on that date in uh, 1940, 41, <clears throat> uh, the, an Italian general, or Mussolini, said to the, uh, said to the Greek um, um, government, we're coming through. Do you surrender? Do you accept our surrender? Otherwise, we're just going to march on Greece. And they said, we do not intend to surrender. No, sir. We don't accept your terms. No. And uh, so the Italians invaded, and they summarily got their, uh, their, uh, their backsides uh, uh, whipped. And so Mussolini suffered a, a horrible defeat. And uh, I guess uh, a, a part of the rationale for the Germans going in was they couldn't allow that to stand. Uh, you know, an Axis, uh, part of the Axis powers being humiliated. Yeah. Uh, and yes, part of it was certainly uh, strategic. Remember the, uh, that, that great movie, The Guns of Navarone. I mean, there were certain uh, huge German installations in the Aegean, in the Adriatic, that were, that were very crucial. And, and one more thing about the Book of Daniel. Uh, the tall statue that with a head of gold and then the body of uh, silver and the legs of iron. Uh, the silver body was Greece, was it not? No, the and then, and then the legs. Silver was Persia, bronze was Greece. Okay, bronze was Greece. Uh, iron Persia, was Rome. It, it looks like that. It, it, it's coming to fruition. Yeah. 
and the the the, the Roman Empire was uh, uh, iron, wasn't? It? Yeah, the two legs of this of Nebuchadnezzar's statue yeah. were iron, so you get the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. Yeah, so uh, all we need to do is have that great big stone come from outer space. Yes. Hit it. All right, yes, Uh, that's uh, exactly terrific. Tony in Brampton, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, 866-744-740. Of course, this program reaches all the way from Thunder Bay, Ontario, way up in the hinterlands, down to the Carolinas, and uh, from Maine to Minnesota, including New York and Washington, Chicago, Minneapolis, you name it. Um, uh, little pockets in the Catskills, notwithstanding, you should be able to pull us in loud and clear. I, uh, I think I owe you a break, young David Gaskin. All right, we'll get that out of the way back on the other side. A few more interesting thoughts from... Nelson Thal, media scientist, and you on the phones, the Richard, not the Richard Serrett Show. Well, it is really the Richard Serrett Show, but we call it the Conspiracy Show, and my name is, coincidentally, Richard Serrett. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. And uh, just a few more weeks uh, left in uh, the program for 2011. Uh, Just a, a programming note, Sunday, December the 25th, there will be no live uh, program of The Conspiracy Show. We'll be uh, the AM740. We'll be offering you some uh, lovely uh, seasonal Christmas music, I am told. So I am happy to have the, uh, the evening off to spend fireside with uh, loved ones. Uh, that's Sunday, December the 25th. Uh, so that leaves uh, the 11th and the 18th. Uh, two more. That's, that's just two more shows in 2011 and then back uh, in uh, G- early January 2012. And um, the other thing, uh, Nelson, maybe we can tease that right now, just briefly. Uh, again, hearkening back to 9/11 and uh, Warren Buffett. Buffett, of course, um, the great, uh, the great uh, investor, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. What, what, uh, what, what's the latest on on Warren Buffett? Well, next year we're going to talk about Buffett and his connection more with 9-11, which is that the flight safety schools that trained many of the terrorists were owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And, of course, he was at Offutt Air Force Base on on 9-11, and that's exactly where George Bush, the president, flew in his Air Force One plane to Offutt. And they told us they were having, Rich, a fundraiser. <laughs> fundraiser yes at an, at the at off at air force they were base. playing canasta I, can you imagine them coming in ties and tails and long stretch limousines to that huge hole in the mountain and ask oh we got a fundraiser going on <laughs> some oh, Lord. fundraiser lordy lord so that, we're going to well, go into that the warren buffett connection all right well i look forward to that one yeah. a lot a lot of uh, interesting shows nelson i'm going to be dragging you in here a lot uh, in 2012 and i look forward to it i should mention again uh, nelson is uh, the re- you are the researcher for the uh, conspiracy television show we just wrapped up season two yeah. uh back i guess in uh, late uh, october 
And uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed for season three. three. Uh, we are waiting anxiously for word on that and can't wait to get back out on the road and uh, start uh, meeting some fascinating people and so forth. Listen, we need to, uh, we're just about to um, uh, welcome aboard Philip Coppins to the program. Before we do that, Nelson, yeah, le- yeah let's, uh, let's... I produce let- a show uh, on the internet called Bloom and Steel, and you can follow it at bloomandsteel.com. The, the actual name of the program is Shock Talk Shock Talk. Bloom and Steel. Yeah. Okay, and when does it air? It airs uh, when, every last Wednesday in the month. Every and last it's going to be this December 14th because the studio is going to be closed there like it is here. So December 14th at 8 p.m. is the next show, 8 p.m. Eastern. Okay, and again, online, they can find it where? Bloomandsteel.com. And steel is spelled? B-L-O-O-M-A-N-D-S-T-E-E-L-E.com. Don't forget the final E on steel. All right. Hey, Nelson, great uh, great pleasure uh, uh, having great you having in again. You back and uh, look forward to a great time. All right, my friend. Um, for those we, we didn't uh, get to on the lines, why don't we, uh, we take a break uh, here, David? I don't know if we're scheduled for one, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll do that, and then we'll, uh, we'll get Philip Coppins ready to go talking about uh, Odyssey of the Gods. If you didn't get in on the, uh, the open line segment, my apologies. Thanks to all who, uh, who did and participated, and uh, we'll talk to you on the other side. Stay with us. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. For over 35 years, Eric Von Daniken has been really captivating us with his theories of astronauts or a- ancient astronauts interacting with ancient civilizations here on Earth. And now a brand new book. He's doing it all over again. It's entitled Odyssey of the Gods, an Alien History of Ancient Greece. We're joined on the line from uh, England by the editor of Odyssey of the Gods. Philip Coppins is an author, investigative journalist, ranging from the world of politics to ancient history and mystery. He co-hosts the Spirit Revolution radio show with his wife, Kathleen McGowan, and is a frequent contributor to Nexus magazine and Atlantis Rising magazine. Since 1995, he's lectured extensively and has reported in a number of television and DVD documentaries, including Ancient Aliens, uh, the series uh, on the History Channel. He is the author of The Stone Puzzle of Rosslyn Chapel, The Cannabis Revelation, Land of the Gods, The New Pyramid Age, Servants of the Grail, the e-book 2012 Science or Fiction, and The Ancient Alien Question. Philip Coppins, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. Thank you. The um, why is it that uh, we are so uh, captivated by this idea of of ancient astronauts? And we now have a TV series uh, based on this. The whole idea, and and a lot of it really did start with with chariots of the gods. But this idea that uh, 
we, we, we have been visited, perhaps civil, our civilization has been helped along from time to time by ancient astronauts. Well, I think the idea comes about because, like, you know, it's that intuition, I think, to some extent. We all know that there's something wrong with history. We all know that the historians quite often go for the easy way out, the simplest answer, and they settle for this. And this is basically where Eric came in over 40 years ago when he realized that without looking at certain things, uh, historians, archaeologists quite often say to this very day, we just know the way these things are. Um, Dr. Zahi Hawass, you know, the, the, the billboard guy for Egyptology, he quite often says so on television, like, we just know these things. We don't need to do further research. We know everything there is to know. And everything we find in the archaeological record is just further confirmation. And it's this dogmatic stance, which is very similar to the church uh, in previous centuries, whereby, you know, they felt that everything in the world was already known and they just had to continuously repeat what they had already found. And then everything would be fine. And Eric, when he brought up about chariots of the gods, he was focusing on various aspects of, of our history. And the book has more than 230 questions in it. Um, and, and basically he's questioning and he's saying, but this doesn't work. This hasn't been explained. This doesn't fit. Um, and in 1968 in chariots of the gods, when he was posing them, there were things like the Nazca lines, for example, in Peru, where scientists had really not been looking into at all. There was one lone woman, Maria Reiki, who was almost single-handedly trying to preserve and get scientific interest and, and you know, a look at what the Nazca lines were. And I think they became the most telltale signs of, of Eric's approach, which was that he said, well, when you're flying over them, uh, when you're viewing them from above, you're actually looking at as if it is an airport, that it so resembles an airport. Could this have been the case? And at that moment in time, in 68, uh, really nobody in, from the scientific community had, had really looked into this. And Eric's really prominent prominenity of, of being so you know, prominent about asking these questions in a, in a book which was going to sell uh, millions of copies really meant that people were beginning to look into this and science had to address these issues. And in the case of, of the Nazca lines, 40 years later, what we found is that indeed they are not a spaceport for the gods, but guess what? There are scientists out there who were actually going to tell you that these geoglyphs of Nazca were actually built to be viewed from above, and they're actually proposing that the civilization was indeed quite highly advanced um, and that they might have had hot air balloons uh, from which these geoglyphs were to be seen. So, you know, 40 years on, some of the questions have been, uh, have been negated, so to speak, but science has enormously advanced. And in so many other cases, um, science just still pretends as if their nose is bleeding. Um, Baalbek in the Lebanon has stones which weigh thousands of tons. There is one stone which is almost weighing 2,000 tons. Um, when you ask science, sorry, when you ask uh, building construct, construction engineers at the end of the 20th century, they will tell you that at the end of the 20th century, they were having the technology to lift these stones, but did not have the technology to lift and transport these stones. So somehow, 2,000, 3,000, maybe many more years before, 
someone was able to lift these stones into place. Um, but again, science pretends as if their nose is bleeding, as if somehow the fact that Baalbek got built is evidence enough of the fact that our ancestors were able to do this. Yet construction engineers um, straightforwardly say this is impossible. Um, you know, there has to have been a piece of technology which is missing. So it's it's little things like that. Whenever you start delving uh, a bit deeper, uh, you realize that there's something wrong. Um, and Eric asks these questions and the television series asks these questions. And it's one of the reasons why uh, it's so popular because it's it's that kind of like, you know, punching somebody in the back all the time and saying, hey, look here, hey, look there. Um, and we, and we, said, we tend to sense it intuitively, as you say. Philip Coppins is uh, the editor of Odyssey of the Gods, an alien history of ancient Greece. And uh, listeners to this program are, are very well aware that uh, uh, my bride, the mighty Aphrodite, is, is Greek. So our children are, are half Greek and they are... Uh, totally into uh, the Greek mythology, uh, the Clash of the Titans, and uh, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, and so forth. And we'll get into that in a moment. But before we do, how did you hook up with Eric von Daniken? Um, basically, it, it goes back to 1995 and, and, and uh, kind of two to three years leading up to that. Um, Eric was uh, holding a series of, of world conferences. Um, and, and basically I was in a position um, of in a job position whereby I had to promote some of the material which was coming out of Belgium uh, and one of them uh, was a study by a Belgian historian to do with the megalithic civilization so um, I made contact with Eric and uh, with Eric asked whether he was uh, interested in helping the promotion of uh, this work and he invited me to speak at his conference um, and a, a friendship was born so in, in Odyssey of the Gods, this is uh, a really a revolutionary interpretation of ancient Greek sites and legends and, of course, the, the pantheon of, of Greek gods, Zeus and Athena and, and, and so forth. And over the next 50 minutes or so, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but um, let's just talk a little bit about the, the similarities between the, the Greek uh, a pantheon and, let's say, uh, the Roman and even the Norse. I mean, there is sort of this common thread that runs throughout throughout these these comp these these ancient uh, mythologies yes i mean it's you know it's almost as if they're all the same and then they've just been given different names uh, and to a large extent that is what happened to a large extent that is what you know because all of these civilizations at the end began to merge the greeks conquered egypt and the romans conquered egypt um you know the correspondences with the north and basically what what was happening with all of these egyptian greek roman uh, correspondences was that the new usurper uh, always had to kind of like find out what its previous one had done and was almost like doing comparison charts. Oh, yeah, we have that kind. Oh, yes, we have this kind. Um, and to some extent, it's, you know, a, a tool. To some extent, um, it's not real in the sense that, you know, you can't map specifically and say, oh, these are precisely the same things. But there are certain correspondences in the sense that, uh, you know, they went in search of, of, of the correspondence. And then to another extent, yes, you, you will find common denominators. You will find that some of these deities are behaving in exactly the same way, uh, doing exactly the same thing. Um, and and it's, it's almost as if sometimes, you know, some of these myths have been taken from, from one um, civilization to another or were known 
to a civilization um, very early on before they actually started to, to, to mix and mingle. So for, for, for most of us, I mean, we, it was always explained to us uh, in, in school that the, the Roman mythology or the Greek mythology, these gods were just a way of explaining the unexplainable at the time in a person's life, a, a, a way of simplifying natural phenomena that we didn't quite understand or wasn't un- understood at the time. So why should we then sort of do a complete about-face and start looking at these Greek gods as actual, real individuals? Well, I mean, and that's precisely um, Eric's point with Odyssey of the Gods, which is that we all grew up with the Greek myths. Um, We all got to hear about them in school. Um, And, you know, to a large extent... Either we read them in the original Greek or we learned them through some other ways. And as you say, we are taught that somehow these are just stories. These are just the Greeks trying to come up with certain explanations for natural phenomena because the poor people didn't really know, you know, um, what was happening around them and complex things like thunder and lightning, they just didn't understand. And well, when you start looking at at myths, and as you mentioned, Jason and the Argonauts um, is is like a good example and one which actually Eric uses. Um, Eric, you know, tackles the story of Jason of the Argonauts and says like, okay, so here we have, we have a Greek hero, hero who goes in search of what precisely, what is this, this golden fleece which he's trying to find? Um, and when he starts looking into the texts, he actually finds, first of all, that modern translations of this story and so many other Greek myths, and you know, for that matter, any other myths, uh, have a very liberal interpretation. So what he does is he goes back and goes to a more... Um, to first of all to an older uh, interpretation uh, but also to a more literal translation of all of these myths and when you start using the more literal translations uh, you will find that there is a reason why they have been modernized which is that the literal ones don't really seem to make much sense for uh, a modern historian and that is to do with the fact that when you read the literal translations you will find for example that you know what what we would describe as monsters um, mythical creatures actually are displaying characteristics of what we would call a defensive mechanism you know um, kind of like a, something which is there to protect something um, the golden fleece most importantly itself is actually shown to be having the capability of flying and even in Jason's entourage there are people who are going with him uh, because they're pretty sure that once they get to the golden fleece they will be able to pilot it um, pretty much like a remote aircraft so that is a completely different point of view um, than um, you know we, we have grown up with because we have grown up with these liberal translations and these modern interpretations which indeed also suggest that the Greeks um, you know kind of like were, were creating these stories and didn't really know what was going on about but the literal translations make far more sense because it kind of explains that the reason why the story of Jason and the Argonauts was put down was not because it was a fantasy story for children, but because it was a remarkable tale of a Greek guy uh, who went in search of a vast um, something very physical and specific in a foreign country with the hope of bringing it back to Greece. And that is the reason why he was recorded. And it's so much different and so much more interesting, I think, from a historical point of view uh, than what we are being taught on, in school. But the school perspective just gets you know, only the highlights and gets this modern vibe to it. And 
basically the only thing which Eric tries to do uh, in Odyssey of the Gods is bring us back to the sources um, as to what the ancient Greeks really believed about their gods rather than what we are led to believe about these gods. You're right. It's, it's also this, this view that we've had of the ancients is also very uh, patronizing that they didn't know. I mean, we're, we're beginning to, to learn so much about how much the ancients did know and how advanced they were. So you're right. Uh, to, 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 to discount the Greek pantheon is simply a way of explaining natural phenomena to very simple people just doesn't wash in this day and age. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Philip Coppins, the editor of Eric Von Donneken's new blockbuster, Odyssey of the Gods, an alien history of ancient Greece. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're back with Philip Coppins, the editor of Odyssey of the Gods, an alien history of ancient Greece, Eric von Donneken's uh, new book. Uh, so walk me through the, the theory of, of uh, who these Greek gods were. Where did they come from? Zeus and Athena and, and, and so forth. Where did they come from and when did they arrive uh, on, on planet Earth? Well, those are questions which, um, you know, kind of sort of go beyond the, the call of, of, of Eric's in, in this book because um, the, the answer is we don't know. Um, the, the answer is that, that these were creatures which were um, of a superior power, so to speak, to, to us um, who seem to have been perennial here um, and who seem to to have our our fate um in 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 their balance but where did they come from uh who who they specifically were um is is not something which um really our um our ancestors seems seem to have known or at least recorded um they they will give you a family of the gods and they will give you um certain explanations but they don't they don't seem to have had all the answers the the Clash of the Titans, which is another uh, favorite movie of my little guys, uh, explain what actually that was about in terms of Van Donneken's reinterpretation of Greek mythology. What what was really the Clash of the Titans? Well, again, these are you know clearly certain things which our ancestors are seeing in the sky. Um, these are things which we know um, were kind of being recorded by our ancestors. But the question then is, what were they recording? And it's, it's very much, you know, what, what the history books tell us about what it is. It's about a clash of creatures who somehow are doing these things and we are very much kind of like the spectators. It's, it's very much like um, being in a stadium uh, and seeing an American football match or a tennis match and being a reporter, but you have no idea who's playing there um, except that you are kind of like you're a spectator to this, to this extraordinary story. And that, that really is, is so much the case, not just for what's happening in ancient Greece, but what's also happening um, in ancient India. You, you find that so much of this material is, is an eyewitness report of something which is, what, what is happening, but which the 
people involved have have no real clue about and they are trying to explain this to to other people to other human beings which is why i think the original uh problem actually arrived because like you know how are you going to explain um a modern explosion for example where you're going to say well it sounded like thunder or it sounded like you know um something which is indeed a natural element um if it happened that night um, you know, how do we describe an atomic explosion? Oh, it's a giant mushroom of light and smoke. Okay, well, I- imagine, um, you know, a few centuries down the line when we are being confronted with, with what happened at, at the 20th century with these explosions. Um, you'll come away with kind of descriptions of our civilization saying giant mushroom clouds um, were seen in the sky. And everybody would kind of probably go... Um, mushrooms don't have clouds and there are no such thing as giant mushrooms so all of these events which they're describing um, simply didn't exist and that is pretty much uh, whenever you're confronted with these uh, ancient warfares whether they're Greek whether they're Indian um, whether they're from from other uh, you know, smaller civilizations you come away with this knowledge that they were using terminology which is um, non-specific to to what they're seeing and it's it's very much like you know a description of of somebody who's who's seeing something doesn't really know what's going on but it's looking for words which everybody will in, understand um, and which unfortunately us in recent times have taken out of contact out of context in our arrogance um, of, of of saying we are a superior culture to anybody um, in in our past and to actually um, you know twist what our ancestors were saying into a mold which um, basically um, fits fits us. So, so the Clash of the Titans may very well have been some sort of a a, a, a battle between alien civilizations utilizing some type of nuclear uh, device. We have mentions in the, in the Vedic writings that sound eerily uh, similar to to nuclear weapons uh, going off, we have uh, the father of the the atomic bomb, Robert Oppenheimer, quoting those Vedic those same Vedic writings when the bomb was tested uh, at Trinity back in the uh, back in the forties. There's a, a little uh, sidebar uh, apparently, and you probably heard this, uh, Philip. When Oppenheimer was asked, it was either after the the bomb was dropped on, on Hiroshima or Nagasaki or after the testing of the bomb at Trinity. Someone asked him, is this the first time um, an atom bomb has been used? And uh, he said yes, and then he sort of uh, off mic said in modern times. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's something which... Um, has has definitely been recorded um, for my own book, uh, which you were mentioning, the ancient alien question. I had to actually verify whether or not that that statement had any, um, you know, sources attributed to it, and um, you know, it it has the proper credentials. So uh, he he definitely said so, and he's not alone. There were various people, um, all of them, all the fathers of of German rocket science, but specifically, um, I I found. Uh, ancestors of um, the, 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 the Russian space program, all of them were extremely interested into uh, the ancient alien question. An awful lot of them um, felt that what they were doing wasn't the first time it had been done. Um, they all did it 
uh, including the likes of Werner von Braun. You know, we have this idea of Werner von Braun as as a guy who was developing V2 rockets for the Nazis and then um, basically was taken by America and, and became the father of the Apollo space program and took us to the moon. But go back to the early 1930s and you will find that, that Werner von Braun and everybody else uh, in Germany around him was really developing rockets um, to take mankind to Mars because they were um, absolutely convinced that mankind had to go into the universe uh, and first to Mars because they were hopeful um, that they were going to find evidence of, of alien life there. Um, and if not on Mars, they were going to go far deeper into space. And it's, it's really when the Nazi regime comes into power a few years later that the Nazi regime basically says, uh, we're not interested in Mars. We want to use your rocket technology and basically create weapons. That's all we're interested in. Um, and so Werner von Braun is one example, but again, the Russians who were involved um, even a few decades before, um, when they were thinking about how to, to basically get, out, get sufficient booster speed uh, on these rockets to, to defy gravity, literally, um, it all was because their drive was not weaponry, was not to just conquer gravity, but to really use that technology to go into space because they were all convinced that we had not been alone. And some of these Russian scientists, you know, they had written entire volumes of books, um, sometimes, you know, solely dedicated to looking into ancient mythology, um, which made them absolutely convinced that what they were trying to do uh, was not the first time it had been done, that what they were trying to do, i.e. go into space, was something which our ancestors had been done. And their studies of ancient mythology was actually um, a tool, a help in them creating all of this rocket technology. Well, it, then the speaking of you know ancient uh, Greece and uh, the space race and connecting the dots, uh, I'm guessing not a coincidence then that the the uh, the mission to land man on the moon was called the Apollo uh, program. What, what what what's the connection there exactly? Well, then we go into the bailiwick of NASA, and you know those people who've been looking into NASA have said never a straight answer is is the real explanation of what NASA should stand for. So. <laughs> There's, there's been some speculation there. Um, if you are going towards the, the theories of Richard Hoagland, um, then you will find that he sees this as a vast conspiracy. Uh, he will tell you that the reason why, you know, the, 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 the kind of like little bar of the A was actually becoming more of uh, Orion's belt. We should read an awful lot into that, that, there's, should, that we should see connections in there with the layout of the Great Pyramid uh, complex um, in, in Giza, which obviously has been designed as, um, uh, you know, according to the layout of Orion's belt. Um, the, it's very difficult to know when it comes to NASA, um, where it comes from, and um, I definitely wouldn't go as far as, as Richard Hoagland in these things, but I would, I would say that it is extremely in interesting that, you know, NASA, it's not just Apollo, but the Mercury, um, Viking even, um, all of these things ha um, have got an enormous amount of mythological appeal and, and the, the use of mythological names. And on a mundane level, people might just say, oh, well, that is simply because, you know, it makes it big and it makes it attractive for people to, to buy into. Um, at the same time, 
uh, it might indeed be that they are stepping into the footsteps of the Werner von Browns uh, and so many others. You know, JPL originally, before it became known as Jet, uh, Jet Propulsion Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, stood for Jack Parsons Laboratory. And Jack Parsons was, again, one of these early American um, space explorers who unfortunately blew himself up in his laboratory in Pasadena in California. Um, but he was into all of these weird things as well. And um, I, I think you will find that uh, when you ask people who are working for NASA, that that uh, amongst them is a large group of people who are absolutely interested in this um, and, and that um, the Greek mythology and, and all of this thing, uh, the, the stories of our ancestors doing these kind of things, was a contributing factor as to why they became rocket engineers. All right. Uh, we'll take a time out when we come back. More of my conversation with Philip Coppins, author, investigative journalist, and editor of Odyssey of the Gods and Alien History of Ancient Greece. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Back with Philip Coppins, editor of Odyssey of the Gods and Alien History of Ancient Greece. And uh, this is the latest by Eric Von Donneken. Perhaps you've also seen Philip Coppins on the History Channel's Ancient uh, Aliens. Uh, let me uh, go back to the uh, the creation myth, the Greek creation myth, which involves uh, Prometheus. And uh, Prometheus and Epimetheus were were um, were sort of spared the wrath of the gods and, and being sent to uh, Tartarus because they hadn't fought with their fellow Titans during the war with the Olympians, and so it was left to Prometheus to help create man. What um, what more can you tell me in light of this? This uh, idea that the uh, the Greek pantheon, Zeus and so forth, were in fact aliens. Well, uh, again, um, you know, the, it's a question which kind of like comes to its logical conclusion, um, and and the way Eric approaches it like this is this. Um, you know, there are people out there who are straightforwardly going to tell you, um, and they're like the likes of Sitchin uh, and so many others, that simply um, by, by looking at some of the imagery on some of these stellar um, or some of these depictions, even reading some of the mythology, that, it, that we know precisely when they came, where they came from, uh, and how it all worked. Um, Eric's approach is far more um, simple or more fundamental or uh, whatever you, you want to call it. Um, basically, Eric's approach is this. Um, in the past, we have been told that everything about uh, Greek mythology is a lie. Um, most famously, probably, was the story of Troy, which really everybody up until 150 years ago uh, was told was pure myth. There was no such city as Troy. Um, and then, of course, Schliemann went out and dug uh, in northern Turkey and realized that he had stumbled upon Troy. And so all of a sudden, all of this Greek myth, uh, which everybody had said was fake and non non-existent, turned out to be true when it came to Troy. Well, when Troy is true, um, that kind of like means, first of all, that the Greek heroes are true. So when we start to applying this to Jason and the Argonauts, when we realize that, uh, again, we are confronted with a story which seems to be myth and which seems to be a story, but when we start reading it in more Greek original translations, uh, we find out that 
really it's it's more factual and that they really go in search of something which is physical well let's then extrapolate and let's say okay so everything else about the greek gods um should should probably be true as well well we have prometheus shaping man out of clay and then athena breathes life into it which sounds eerily familiar to genesis where god creates man out of dust and and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life absolutely and and so you know the question which which eric um poses there is is simply exactly what you said um if if we are finding that everything in greek mythology um is factually true in the sense that you know everything which we can verify at this moment in time troy exists all of these other things um then shouldn't we take the rest or should we consider uh, the rest of Greek mythology, Greek mythology, to be factually true as well, and the factually true, the the only thing really Eric is is saying is like you know the the Greeks might have gotten it wrong, they might have made errors in 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 translating it, but there is something within the Greek mythology which clearly shows that the Greeks f- um, believed that these gods were real, um, and and so rather than than the general consensus, which is to assume that, um, you know, Prometheus never existed, that that this story of Prometheus was just something which the Greeks invented because they had no idea how life truly originated. So they just came up with a, a story which everybody said, like, oh, this is so lovely, this is so beautiful. No, uh, again, um, what Eric is proposing is, is basically saying, uh, no, this is really what the ancient Greeks believed. Um, and judging from other indicators, uh, it might have actually happened like this. And, you know, getting to the final answer as to whether Prometheus or not uh, created mankind uh, and how mankind was created um, will take far more uh, effort than than just, you know, the works of, of one man um, and, and, and one book. So Eric, as he did in the 1960s, is, is basically trying to rally uh, support and, and interest people into saying, hey, maybe we should look further into this uh, and then maybe we will come up um, with, some, with, some, with some real answers, um, which is precisely what he did you know, in the 1960s when he was posing more than 240 questions at that moment in time um, and, and basically rallying people uh, and scientists to, to start looking into these things. Let's let's talk about uh, some of the ancient uh, Greek sites, the oracular site of Delphi. Um, what does uh, Van Donneken uh, theorize that, that that site was actually used for? Um, again, it's you know it's it's the question as as what are we saying about Delphi? Um, you know, again, we we are being told that that Delphi is for oracles, um, that there's a priestess called Apithia, um, and that, you know, that they're somehow having to do some certain things. Well, first of all, when you start looking into it, um, it's been said that in Delphi, the, the caves were finished by Apollo, uh, and that he journeyed to Delphi in a heavenly vessel. Um, that there was a mythical creature, uh, a terrible dragon, which became known as the Python, uh, that Apollo killed this monster uh, and pushed it into uh, the cave. Um, and so w- when we look at the story of, of Delphi, what we seem to have in, in, um, you know, in popular belief is that there's this woman who somehow was sitting there and just faking it all. 
because you know the, even the science of prophecy um, is is not believed to have been uh, an existent science, and it's believed that she and her fellow people, um, if we are believing modern historians, were just pretty much there to just fool uh, emperors uh, in, into believing uh, whatever. Well. First of all, you know, Eric is saying, well, maybe not. And let's start looking into to where it comes from. So he's, he's basically arguing that what is happening there is, is that really the origins of Delphi are of extreme interest because we're confronted there with a, a very specific um, you know, set of circumstances, which is that Apollo came there, Apollo conquered a monster, um, and and then that the monster was was pushed into the rock face there, and that is a far more um, you know interesting story, um, I think, than than anything. And then from there you can begin to extrapolate. You know, like what was this priesthood doing there? Were they protecting whatever um, was left of there? Um, was it real in the sense that you know? Um, might his might historians have been accurate that that really there was no prophesizing uh, happening and that these were just priestesses and priests sitting there um, doing these things or was indeed um, you know something else entirely happening which was that um, people came there to see something which was truly extraordinary and that the prophetesses were um, some kind of guardians who were protecting this and only allowing certain people to actually see um, what was left of this um, heavenly battle between Apollo um, and the Python. So again, um, you know, to, to a large extent, we, we might never know the, the final answer until we start looking into all of these myths um, to an extent which, again, far exceeds uh, the, the work of, of Eric. Um, and what Eric always has done and continues to do is basically say, okay, these are the bits of history where I think um, that really we should pay attention to because the further and further we delve into them, the more evidence we're going to accumulate um, that that something truly extraordinary and important was going on, and uh, on a number of occasions, that that the answer will be that what was going on was uh, contact with either extraterrestrials or you know with um, creatures which were definitely not like like you or I. Uh, Philip, are you or or Eric aware of any archaeological discoveries, maybe that have not even come to light for the you know for public consumption, that maybe they're being suppressed outright because they don't fit sort of the um, the the timeline that's been laid out for us and they can only be explained perhaps by some sort of alien intervention. I'll tell you why I ask this. I, I recently spoke with Lamont Wood who, who just wrote a book called Out of Space and Time and it's about these uh, developments, technological innovations or inventions that seem to come out of nowhere. And he mentioned to me that in ancient Greece... Uh, there were they were playing with toys that were basically propelled by small steam engines. Yes, um, yes, and and to to some extent, you know that those kind of toys um, and and that kind of technology is recorded. Um, so, are there suppressions of, however, of of of, of you know what I would say? Other things. I, I think the answer is that anything which is upsetting the paradigm of, of history is always attacked. Um, sometimes, you know, it doesn't even have to evolve extraterrestrial beings. Um, the things like, I mean, 
things like the Bosnian pyramid, for example, always stun me in the sense that, you know, when Samuels Manigic in 2005 said, like, um, I think I have found uh, evidence of, of pyramids in, in Bosnia, um, everybody kind of like immediately jumped and said, there is no such thing as a possibility that there are pyramids in Bosnia. And actually, well, you know, where where the pyramids are located is part of an old, of an, of an old civilization called Old Europe. Uh, people like Maria Gimbutas um, wrote a number of books about it. Um, it's basically a civilization which was on par with anything the Sumerians did um, and what the ancient Egyptians did, except that up until 2005, archaeology had said that you know, Old Europe didn't have a pyramid-building culture. But in everything else apart from the pyramids, again, they're on par um, with Sumer and, and Egypt. And so, you know, a, a guy like, like, um, like Osmanagic, what he's basically saying is, um, I think I have found a, a missing aspect of a civilization. And the amount of um, you know, abuse, specifically personal abuse he got from the scientific establishment was just extreme. Uh, the, the European Association of Archaeologists basically said to any of their members um, that if there was one archaeologist who was going to head to Bosnia uh, and help us manage in this endeavor, that when they returned, they would make sure that they never worked on an archaeological dig ever again. Um, and I find that this threatening behavior is is not something which just applies to Osmanagic. Uh, it applies throughout history. Um, and when it comes to, to the alien thing, um, you know, in, in my book, The Ancient Alien Question, um, and also it's featured on, on ancient aliens in the third season, um, I focus a bit on the work of Chandra Wickramasinghe, who is a um, professor of um, astrobiology and anything to do with the origins of life. Um, in, um, in, in, in Wales, in, in, in the UK. And he's one of those people who for years, he, he's, he was a student of the late Sir Fred Hoyle. And all of those people um, from a very early uh, time onwards were absolutely aware that the possibility that life originated on planet Earth was very small. Basically, even in the 19th century, um, people were very much aware that, that for life to have really originated on planet Earth, um, certain conditions on Earth had to have existed, which simply didn't exist on Earth. It's the old paradigm that or, uh, anorganic material cannot create organic material. Um, and, you know, we live in this, this belief that somehow life originated on planet Earth because there was this primordial soup, which somehow really was a magical cauldron, you know. Um, it, it really would define at this, defy at this moment in time the laws of, of physics uh, to suggest that, that life did originate there. Well, now well, we, we know there was no biological soup. I mean, that's been disproven. Yes, and, and you know, Wickramasinghe is basically saying that his research and so much of uh, his fellow astrobiological researchers uh, uh, colleagues' research since 1982 has been suppressed by by the journals. That the journals are not allowing him uh, and any of his colleagues to publish their material in their findings. Which is why, um, when you look at what NASA is doing in recent years, they are you know whenever they have this these big discoveries about whether it is about the, um, finding life in a meteorite or last year the Wolf Simon example, um, whereby this this scientist said that she had found. Um, life in, in Mona Lake, California, which was 
you know, not not alien in the sense that it was extraterrestrial, but that it was constructed according to um, a logic which was completely alien, which was completely unlike anything in the way uh, life really on Earth should be, and that you know it shouldn't exist if we go by the textbooks of of how life uh, originates and exists on a planet, and. Um, you know, whenever such a thing happens, NASA basically realizes that they're not going to be published, that there is this boycott. So they go for press conferences. They go for they, – they basically bypass, um, you know, because they know that since 1982 um, that there really is what, what Wickham Machinery has referred to as this conspiracy of silence, which is basically that scientists are unwilling to listen to, to, to the message of hundreds of astrobiologists, you know, um, who basically are all saying life exists uh, somewhere else in this universe uh, and it came from elsewhere in the universe to here. Okay. NASA, has, NASA has created interstellar space. Uh, in laboratories, and when they recreated it, basically they found that RNA life, uh, RNA like life style, you know, were, began to exist um, spontaneously. They basically are concluding everywhere uh, that life is a cosmic that life is a cosmic imperative, and that you should be able to find it anywhere in the universe. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, we'll find out whether the gods of uh, the ancient Greeks were in fact engaging in some. Uh, genetic engineering here on Earth. Back with more of my conversation with Philip Coppins, the editor of Odyssey of the Gods. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Philip Coppins uh, is with us, author, investigative journalist, and uh, really covers a lot of ground, everything from uh, exploring Rosalind Chapel to uh, even the JFK assassination. And uh, you've probably seen him on um, Alien, uh, Ancient Aliens on uh, the History Channel. He is uh, the editor of Eric Von Donneken's new book, Odyssey of the Gods, which is a, a really radical reinterpretation of the Greek pantheon. Were they, in fact, extraterrestrials? So we see these depictions, even going back to the Babylonian times, of these strange creatures. We have of griffins, these, you know, a lion combined with an eagle. We have the sphinx, of course. We have... Uh, in the Greek mythology, we have the Cyclops, we have Medusa with the hair of snakes, we have uh, uh, these, you know, giants, races of giants. I mean, they're even mentioned in the Bible. Were these <clears throat> the product of some sort of genetic experimentation on the, part, on the parts of these E.T. slash gods? Um... <sighs> I think they might be. I also think that some of them might just have been the gods. Um, you know, when you go into um, Babylonian history, um, Babylonian history, and to some extent, as as told uh, to a Greek audience, uh, the story of of, of Barossus, um is is really one. Um, which was actually the late Carl Sagan's favorite, in which you had this mythical creature called Oannes, who came out of the ocean, um, basically was described as being half fish, half man, 
um, spoke to mankind, instructed them on the the sciences like you know astronomy uh, and and all of these things. Um, at night, went back into the waters of the Persian Gulf, um, emerged at, at, on subsequent occasions, um, instructed them further into these sciences, and then at the moment in time. Um, Oannes no longer came, but a different creature, um, similar in appearance, but not Oannes, uh, came from the seas um, and, and basically took off where uh, Oannes had left off um, in his teachings to mankind. So it, it suggests, you know, and, and again, this was the favorite of, of, of Carl Sagan uh, when he was looking for evidence of um, uh, intelligent life, which was non-human, making contact with our ancestors. Um, so when we're talking about these genetic experimentations, um, you know, again, you have the big theories, the Sitchins, who basically say that mankind was somehow specifically engineered to work in the mines um, and, and do gold digging. Um, and to some extent, the likes of Paul Davis in a recent article um, where he tries to create a, a new science of astroforensics, which is really looking into the archaeological record um, and, and seeing whether there is evidence for um, extraterrestrial uh, visitation or presence on planet Earth. Uh, he also sees that as as a possibility. But the, you know, again, there there are two paths there. If we go according to the mythology, um, then and, and to some extent the archaeology, um, the, there is there are known examples of giants. Um, some of them have been found in things like Spirit Cave um, in Northern California, Nevada. Um, you know these that. That's an archaeological example. The mythological example definitely does suggest that there is strange engineering of, of things, um, you know, exceeding um, what we would describe to be normal uh, by, you know, by creatures who clearly are not non-human. Um, so the, the fact that, that some of this uh, probably went wrong and resulted in creatures which were um, what I would not say uh, have a sustainable life or, or were able to procreate is something which we see today uh, as well. You know, our, our planet is, is populated with specifically creatures like cows, cats and dogs, which we have, um, you know, genetically guided to, to what they have uh, become. And um, if, if you have a dog or a cat, you will know that quite often certain races um, are very uh, unstable. Some of them have even difficulty being, uh, being born. Um, some of them have problems with hips, you know, with, with certain breeds of dogs. Um, and the fact is that they were created as such and that it is known that some of these things and the way in which they are uh, genetically manipulated um, means that some of these things are happening. And so whether or not that has been happening in the past is, is you know, something else. Uh, just excluding the possibility of, of, of um, an ET intervention, um, you know, there, it's clear that in the past there were so many different uh, types of, of mankind. There was Cro-Magnon, there was Homo erectus. Um, and we just assume that that mankind homo sapiens sapiens um was was just part of this evolution and i have never had any possibility that somehow this had to do with you know some kind of um inbreeding so to speak of of cro-magnon with something else which resulted in in us there um that you know it was two different strands of of mankind uh interbreeding which you would think um, you know, judging from what's happening today, where various uh, people are, you know, interbreeding as well. 
um, that you know that that this is something which which we should consider in our history books. But not even that is being considered by by our scientists. So um, you know, going further than that is is really problematic. And um, what Paul Davis is actually saying is that whereas with SETI at home. Uh, which is this 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 um, program whereby basically your computer time when it's when it's not when you're not working at it but your computer time is on you can help NASA uh, help analyze signals of extraterrestrial life uh, by by you know, using your computer that the same thing should be done for DNA because he uh, he's not convinced but he's pointing out that there might be evidence of um, alien intervention present uh, in our uh, DNA which simply um, scientists, uh, geneticists, have been unable to pick up uh, and that it will need no flood of computer power uh, to actually look for some of the signs as to, uh, you know, how the, the sequencing of DNA uh, might betray uh, such signs of an of an Well, there's so, uh, much of our, so much of our DNA, I forget the percentage, if you, you may know, uh, that they just sort of dismiss as junk DNA. They can't figure out you know, what it was for, what it all means, and perhaps that so-called junk DNA is the, 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 the fingerprints or the signature of a, um, an alien-human hybrid program. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, they've they've begun to realize that junk DNA actually now is beginning to serve a purpose, that it somehow uh, is involved in processes. But yeah, it's, you know, I mean, figures kind of like you know, basically say that 97% of our um, of our DNA is junk DNA. Basically, what they're saying today is that 97% of our DNA, um, they have no idea what it actually does. Uh, however, they do know that the 3% is the most complex and the best photocopying machine uh, that ever existed, um, you know, in the universe. Um, and and so the 97% is still a big um, question mark for science, which science needs to explain. And whereas, you know, a few decades ago, they, they simply had labeled it junk DNA. Now, some of them, uh, the more progressive ones, are actually saying that they have no idea uh, what it does, but that it does seem that that junk DNA, uh, quote unquote, um, basically, you know, is not junk and, and does seem to do something and is involved in certain processes. But again, what that is, um, science still hasn't uh, answered. And I find this is, you know, the big, my big, my big uh, uh, craziness about uh, the attitude of scientists a lot is that they're so quick to dismiss um, modern thinking about, you know, whether or not we, we, we come from outside of the universe, whether, um, you know, we should be looking into these mythologies and possibly wonder whether they're real. 97% um, of DNA uh, it's a complete mystery to us. So how can we possibly say that life, you know, as we know it, could not have come from outer space? Um, what, what's the arrogance there? Um, but, you know, this is my biggest upset, and it's not just an upset which I have on my own. Uh, it's it's one, as I said before, which an awful lot of astrobiologists are, are sharing with me. I, I agree. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think the, you mentioned arrogance. I think uh, humility is, uh, is certainly that something that... that, that uh, we can use a lot more of on the part of the scientific community, the medical community, all of us, really. But you consider, yeah, 97%, as you say, 97% of our DNA, we don't know what it's for. 95% of the universe, we're told, is, is made up of dark matter, and we don't know anything about that. So we don't know a whole lot. 
No, and you know, probably 95% of our history is locked up somewhere in some government thing with, with a top secret thing. You know, um, more and more of our of our governments are, are being done behind closed door. Um, you know, we, we get such a limited view. And you know, to a large extent, it's, it's precisely um, you know, part of the point which, which Eric is making, which is that um, the ancient Greeks were quite often looking at things um, and and reporting on them, and they quite often didn't know what was going on either, because they weren't invited into you know what the gods and and the divine realm. Um, very privileged people were sometimes allowed to to make contact with them, um, and, and and nobody really knew what was going on either. So um, you know it, it's another thing which which basically suggests that. Um, you know, we know very little about our, our, our own history and what we do know, you know, derives from an enormous a little amount of, of information because whether it is the Spanish conquistadores in, in the New World or, um, you know, the Inquisition or uh, any, you know, the, the destruction of the Alexandrian Library, you will find that we ourselves uh, quite often destroyed most of the uh, available evidence when it didn't suit our purposes. The the history as to how the Bible became the Bible is probably the best example, whereby um, you know we all know that originally there were various opinions as to uh, Jesus Christ, the Man, the God, the Son of God, um, all of uh, and, and various other um, um, strands of Christianity, which 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 gave a view as to what this man was doing. They were all they were all pretty sure that this was an extraordinary figure. Um, with you know, extraordinary capabilities, um, but some of them were focusing on his miracles, some of them were focus, focusing on him, uh, some of them were focus, focusing on his message, and, and the way Christianity w- went about it um, was basically um, by, by picking bits from, from, from one strand to another, and some of them completely disappeared, uh, and the end result, what we have, um, is is as we you know we are finding out whenever the Nakamadi um, documents are found or that sea scrolls are found, um, what the Catholic Church eventually began to believe um, is just one aspect of of a figure uh, which was far more complex and far more interesting than than you know what 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 we made him into. And let, that's let me go back a, to the, uh, the the Greeks if I could the ancient Greeks and, and are there any <clears throat> I mean what do the ancient the, the writers, the poets, the historians, how, do they shed any light on this? Let's start with, 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 um, with uh, um, uh, Plato. I mean, does he offer any clues or, or insights into uh, that, that could prop up von Daniken's uh, theory? Well, you know, um, Plato, you know, Eric uses the story of Plato and Atlantis as uh, another uh, example, um, you know, and, and, and the, the thing is this, like when you say Eric's theory, um, Eric's, Eric really doesn't have theories when it comes to ancient astronauts. Eric goes into um, the, 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 the myths and, and, and the stories and everything and basically asks questions whether, you know, um, his analysis of these things, uh, whether or not they, they, they point to, to something going on there which, which exceeds or supersedes uh, what, what, we, what we think of. But he doesn't walk away with theories or no, know, that's specific fair. Yes. things. Um, but, but, you know, Plato is, is a very good example because, again, and, and this is like the pat position where I, I think this entire field sits in. Um, you know, Plato writes about lost civilization of Atlantis. Um, 
And when you go into any university building, the likeliest thing is that they would say that Plato either wrote about a civilization um, which you know, was probably the Minoan or the Cretan one and which indeed disappeared, or more likely, um, they will tell you that he fictionalized a, a, a civilization, that he I, made, created this ideal society which didn't exist because he was trying to show uh, his fellow Greek people um, that the way they were living was far below um, the standards he wanted them to live uh, and that somehow he had uh, you know incorporated these standards into the story of Atlantis well here's the thing here's the thing which the historians won't tell you um, and they're very basic first of all the story of Atlantis was uh, in a book about history Plato wrote history and he wrote philosophy but the story of Atlantis was in a book all dedicated to history Two. Plato said that the story of Atlantis was history. And, you know, the, the, the modern, arc, arc, the modern uh, historians are basically saying, oh, well, you know, an awful lot of people do that. They pretend something is history, but it's actually not. It's this literal thing which they're trying to do. Well, that is your interpretation. You know, you need to, you need to come up with more evidence to suggest than that Plato was actually doing that. But part three, which very few people know, is that Plato in his own time had skeptics because Plato was basically saying, hey, I, I'm reporting this story about Solon who went to, to Egypt at one point and he came, he came back to Greece with the story of Atlantis. Well, he had skeptics in his own time, Plato. So what happened was that some of these skeptics went to Egypt in the absolute conviction that once they arrived there, they would find no evidence whatsoever uh, of the story of Atlantis and they would go back to Greece and basically say that Plato had it all wrong. And guess what? In, it, uh, in Egypt, they made contact with uh, the priests of the temple complexes, which Solon had uh, spoken to. And they identified, first of all, that Solon had indeed been there. But they actually showed them the columns, uh, which at that moment in time still existed, but unfortunately no longer exist in our time, um, which showed to the uh, Greeks uh, of Plato's time that you know the story of, of Atlantis was indeed something which the ancient Egyptians uh, knew about and had spoken about to Solon, who in turn had given it to Plato. So again, where we're at today uh, is, is this denial of something which the ancient Greeks held at absolute fact uh, and which in that time um, was substantiated by, by backing it at the source. So uh, it's, it's, to me, um, idiotic and you know, frustrating uh, and I'm not the only one there, you know, Eric and so many other people are sharing uh, this frustration that that science is this detached world which is trying to explain things away rather than explain things. And so the idea was that, that uh, actually Troy and Atlantis were one and the same, is that correct? Um, it's, it's a possibility. It's, it's, um, <laughs> Eric at one point in Odyssey of the Gods actually says like, okay, let's stop all focusing on where Atlantis is and let's just get down to the basics and ex accept that Atlantis was um, real. Um, so that Atlantis equals Troy is, is definitely a possibility. But again, I think it's a step um, down the line. I think, you know, first of all, what we need to, to get to is, is accepting and uh, trying to push science into accepting um, that Atlantis should be studied uh, as something which uh, was more than likely physically real as Troy. Um, and then, you know, whether Troy was Atlantis um, can be the next step. It's a possibility. People um, have proposed that in the past, uh, and, and and again, it's a possibility. But it's one 
uh, example and uh, to to paraphrase Eric, uh, it's maybe something which we shouldn't be focusing on uh, primarily. Well, Philip, uh, listen, I really enjoyed our time we've uh, spent together this evening. And um, uh, what can we look forward to uh, from uh, the mind and pen of Philip Coppins? Well, I have uh, a book out, which is The Ancient Alien Question, which is basically uh, something of an unofficial companion volume uh, to the to do to uh, the series Ancient Aliens. Uh, it's it's written for you know very much in the style of Eric uh, to a large audience, um, and and basically giving them an overview of what it is all about. Um, kind of you know what are the big possibilities, what are the big theories out there. Um, I, as I said, I think during the interview, I also tackled this this notion that that life actually originates from the Earth. I look at all the evidence, you know, all the structures bow back across the world. Uh, what Eric is doing for uh, Greece. I, I basically do for the world and um, you know come up with I think uh, primary evidence to suggest that we have indeed been contacted and that we uh, were not alone in the past not alone in the past that's a great line I, I love it uh, and the website www.philipcoppins.com one L in Philip two P's in Coppins C-O-P-P-E-N-S Philip thank you for this thank you for having me all right bye-bye This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.